I'm Jim Calloway. And I'm Sharon Nelson. This is the 50th edition of the Digital Edge Lawyers and Technology. The Big Five O. Who knew we would make 50 podcasts, Sharon? I can't believe that we've done this for more than four years. It's just amazing. I, I think back to when you burst into my hotel room telling me you had this great idea for this podcast, and uh, it's just amazing. Here we are on episode number 50 and with an exciting new guest. Yes, today our topic is Solo by Choice, Be the Lawyer You Always Wanted to Be. We are very pleased to welcome as our guest, Carolyn Elephant. Carolyn is an attorney with her own firm, the Law Offices of Carolyn Elephant in Washington, D.C., which focuses on energy regulatory issues, emerging renewables, appeals, and social media in regulated industries. Carolyn is also the creator of MyShingle.com, the longest-running blog on solo and small firm practice issues. It was launched in 2002, and she is the co-author of Social Media for Lawyers and the author of the just-released second edition of Solo by Choice, a comprehensive 21st century guide to starting and running a law firm. Welcome, Carolyn. Hi, it's great to be here to celebrate your 50th episode. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, what is Solo by Choice about, Carolyn, and what are some of the changes that you've made in this second edition? Well, as Jim said, it's a comprehensive guide on starting and running a firm in the 21st century. It makes the case for why lawyers should consider starting a practice, and then it talks about the nuts and bolts how-tos, and primarily how to leverage 21st century technologies like or, or trends like outsourcing, alternative billing, social media, the internet, to run a successful 21st century practice. I think that really the biggest changes between 2008 when the first edition was released and now is, of course, there have been technology changes, but the larger change, I think, is the bigger picture. Back in 2008, when I wrote the book, I really had to make a powerful case for why lawyers should start a firm because big firms were hiring and people were making money that way, but they were also working long hours and weren't very satisfied. And so solo practice was a good way to achieve more flexibility and it was more of a lifestyle choice. As you know, the economy went into a tailspin shortly after the first book came out in 2009. And now solo practice is really being seen as a career path of last resort. And so in this situation, the financial considerations attendant to starting a law firm and using solo practice as a way to have a career in the law are, are things that come into play much more prominently than in the first edition. You mentioned technology. How has technology changed the nature of solo practice? Well, both in the first edition of the book and now, I mean, technology is really just decimated the cost of opening a practice. It just, it, it still just astounds me after 17 years in practice to think that there are these free tools that you can use in your practice, like uh, Gmail or Google Voice, that are free. And they were things that I never even thought of when I started my practice 17 years ago. So not only are these powerful tools available at low cost, they're things that I never even contemplated before. Um, technology has brought down the cost of legal research. That was another huge hurdle for solos who started their firm. And so in general, technology is really helping make solo practitioners not just be able to provide service in a more of cost-effective manner, but they're actually helping solos improve the quality of service that they deliver. Well, I know John is going to absolutely shoot me if I don't mention that the free Gmail is probably not a good idea because if you read the terms of service, 
it basically makes no promises about what it might do with your data. But if you do the $50 a year account, which we can all afford, then they make promises. So for, for a lawyer, I think the premium account is, is probably best. Don't you, Carolyn? Yes, I, I actually, I do agree with you, Sharon. And actually, one of the um, topics that I cover in this edition of Solo by Choice is I compare the free free technology versus for a fee. And of course, free is never, ever worth it if you have to compromise client security or uh, work with a product that, that's not reliable or that doesn't have customer service. So I, I do agree with you on that point. I, I guess, though, you know, I mentioned things like Gmail or even Google Voice, not necessarily for doing work that forms the core of your law practice, but maybe for things that are incidental to it. I mean, for example, in your law practice, you might use your Google app, but to participate in a listserv, you might use something like Gmail. So I think of those free services as sort of ancillary to your core mission of your firm. That's yeah. why I mentioned them. That, that makes that makes a whole lot of sense. Absolutely. You know, one of the things I think all three of us probably hear all the time from audiences that we lecture to is that you know, solos just have a terrible time staying current with technology, and it is really tough. What do you think solos can do to stay on top of technology? Well, I think there are a couple of things. I mean, first of all, we really have an embarrassment of riches available to solo practitioners through blogs, I, you know, such as your blog. Uh, Jim frequently posts on new technologies that are available to solos. In fact, a lot of the law practice management advisors talk about new technology. So they're sort of focusing on the law blogs um, is is one way to stay current. I find that another way to really track technology trends is to to follow tech blogs, to look at blogs like TechCrunch or Mashable, which is a little bit less of a tech blog, but to, to look at blogs like that because it really gives you a sense of where things are headed. And you see that there's a lot of investment going into companies like Dropbox or Box.net, which are cloud-based platforms. You get a sense that this is where the technology is heading in sort of the, the world outside the legal profession. And so that gives you some insight. It gives you kind of a tip off to, to know that it's going to come next to the legal profession. And, and also, I, I, I will give a shout out to ABA Tech Show because that probably is, if, if you only have three days to spend on technology, if you go there, you can, you can learn a year's worth of tech in three days. So definitely worth the cost. Well, as two former tech show chairs here, we appreciate that <laughs> shout out. Uh, let me give you a real softball question. Are law schools today adequately preparing students for solo practice? I, I laugh at this. I remember I sat on a panel with you, Jim, and you, you talked about some of these issues. I don't think law schools are doing an abysmal job. I think that the bigger problem with law school today, as opposed to 10 years ago, is that the it is really economic. The cost of law school has gone up, and it hasn't stayed consistent with with salaries. And so people are graduating with much higher debt than they used to. And of course, when you've got a lot of debt, it's very stressful and you tend to complain about the law school experience. And the other thing is, is that law practice is a little bit more complex these days with issues like technology. And law school could certainly do a better job of preparing students for that. But what I see time and time again in my practice and with young lawyers who I hire is many of them, they can't write and they don't know how to research. Their idea of research is just going on Google and putting in a couple of search terms. And that's, to me, is is very wasteful of time. And it's not good, a solid, rigorous way to, to research. And, and many of them can't analyze issues either. Law school, in theory, is supposed to do that, although a lot of people aren't taking those lessons. There are also clinics in law school 
and practical classes. And if you're thinking about starting a practice, you should take advantage of those. Now, it's true that some law schools are, there's disparity between schools. Some may have more skills programs available than others. But I think that by sort of picking and choosing through a menu of of products, you can come up with the skills that you need to start a firm. I'm actually not a supporter of teaching things like filing a complaint or in, in, in law school or drafting a contract. There are a lot of samples that are available online, and I find that they're so case-specific. And the example that I always give is you did some pro bono work a couple of months ago, a foreclosure work. And I've never done that kind of work before. So I went in the courtroom. I mean, I didn't know where to file the papers. I didn't even know what side of the courtroom to be on. I mean, I've appeared in the D.C. Circuit in federal court. and I didn't know how to do these things. So what do I do? Well, I asked. That's that's the kind of, but I knew the right questions to ask because I knew what I needed to know. So I think that's the more important skill is to teach people to know what questions they need to ask or what information they need to gather rather than sort of very nuts and boltsy types of training. One of the questions I've been asked a lot is is whether solos can market a practice entirely online. And, and I, I've kind of said grudgingly, yes, but I don't think it's a good idea. How would you answer that question, Carolyn? I, I agree with you on, on that. It's Yes, it is possible, but what I have seen, the, the success stories that I've seen with solos who market online is, first of all, it's it's costly. It's You don't just throw up a blog and a website and let it sit there. The solos who are marketing and practice online are pr- purchasing professional SEO or really educating themselves on SEO. I mean, spending days and days and days figuring out how how to do it. And so there's there's uh, time involved with that. Um, the other thing is, is that with the clients you attract online, you can certainly get a steady stream of business and you can run a reasonably a reasonable volume practice, but I don't think that you're going to get the the bigger cases or the more bespoke, as Richard Suskin says, the more bespoke type of work that is really going to kind of free you from the drudgery of just processing cases. I think that in order to get those types of cases, you need to go out and meet other attorneys. You need to speak at CLEs or at trade associations. You need to do a little bit more to show to show that you're knowledgeable. So I, I think you can earn a living online, but I think it's more expensive than people uh, think. And I think that the types of clients you get, you're eventually going to get tired of, and you may want to move up to the, take your practice to the next level with better quality cases. Well, uh, having finished or concluding my, I think, sixth year of blogging, I'm becoming more aware of how, what a challenge it is to do it day in and day out. But you've become very well known for your blog. Do you think that solo lawyers should blog? I think it depends. I Now, you know, I... I love blogging. And actually, to be honest, though, the blog that I love the best is my shingle, which is not my law firm blog at all. I have two blogs for my law firm practice. One has to do with marine renewable energy, which has really given me a lot of visibility on the international scene in that practice area. And then I have another blog, Next Generation Energy Lawyer, which is about emerging energy technologies, social media, and the utility industry, those types of issues. And that has also gotten me some some good 
invitations and help me make some new contacts. And that's just relatively new. But I do like to write and I do like to sort of puzzle over a lot of these issues. And I, I like to spend, I don't have a lot of hobbies. I mean, I, I sort of enjoy reading law journals or puzzling out new issues. So that's, it's enjoyable for me. If you don't like to write though, or you don't like doing that kind of stuff, then you shouldn't blog. I don't think that you should hire somebody to blog. You shouldn't get a ghost blogger. You shouldn't have a boring blog where you just sort of do a perfunctory, this case was issued and that case was issued. I think that's more like what Twitter is for. So I would say that if you like to write, then you should blog. It is, it gives terrific search engine visibility. It confers expert status. It helps you make contacts with other lawyers in your practice area. I and mean, there's certainly benefits to it, but if you don't like writing, don't do it. There are a lot of other ways to get visibility online. Yeah, I, I absolutely agree with that. And I know you and I have been very successful at it, but we, we do both enjoy writing and we inject a little personality and so forth in the blog postings. And I, I think that makes a big difference. Could, could you expound a little bit on some of the ethics considerations to marketing a practice online? Because the ethics has really changed in the electronic world. Yes, yes, it has. I think that first of all, you actually have to realize that there are ethics <laughs> considerations and that just because you're online, it's somehow ethics rules don't apply. I think the best source of information on this topic to date, sort of for the big picture approach, is the ABA Ethics 2020 Commission. They are sort of reevaluating all of the model rules in light of uh, the, the 21st century, and they've come out with a what I consider to be um, a reasonable position paper on lawyer use of the of the internet for marketing a practice, and essentially the the marketing a practice on the the ethics issues that come up online. What, what, I guess what I always say about ethics is that it changes the media, not the message. So something that you do in the real world. If I go to a cocktail party and start screaming about how my client told me he had drugs in his car and he was arrested, breaching confidentiality just as much as if I posted it on Twitter. So a lot of times you just have to, the the actions are the same, they're just taking place in a different media. Having said that, there are some red flags that people often don't think about. There's the issue of, I guess the, the big issue on LinkedIn was they have a little box for specialization. There are some lawyers who put a little caveat in there saying that their bar doesn't endorse specialization, but they can say that they focus on something. I kind of think that one is a little stupid, but I put it out there because some people do think it's important. Certainly on things like Twitter, you have to be careful about violating confidentiality. I think increasingly, though, the most prudent rule is to just not talk about live cases and not discuss clients. There was an article that came out just yesterday. I think it was in the Cleveland Business Journal. It, it, it talked about how it was uh, re referenced a Forrester survey that talked about how increasingly corporations are hiring investigators to call through people's social media trails online. And based on just what people have posted on Facebook and Twitter and Foursquare, these companies could piece together who you're working with and what you're doing. And that poses the biggest threat, in my view, to confidentiality than, than anything else. So I think it's very important, even though um, I, I, I think I come across as being sort of loose and easy with ethics rules, on issues like confidentiality and what you talk about online, 
I just think that you should not be discussing any cases, any clients, not, not even mentioning it, not even hinting at it, because these technologies allow people to get a lot more information out of that than you anticipate. So I think that's really the biggest issue that solos should be keeping in mind as they move forward in the Internet age. Carolyn, the uh, marketing has certainly uh, changed because of the Internet. I often counsel lawyers who want to blog about their cases to keep handy releases for the client to sign because confidentiality is much broader than privilege. You can talk about right. things that are confidential. And so I think that may be an idea, but it certainly changed. In the old days, it was whether we send out a firm Christmas card and whether we, what, how big an ad we buy in the yellow pages, if at all. But today, it's much different. So moving a, a little bit apart from the Internet, what are the most effective marketing strategies for solos in your opinion? I think that a part, part of it, of course, is, is practice dependent. An attorney who is marketing to an energy company or telecom company may in some ways uh, use different techniques than the personal injury lawyer. But I think that one of the principles that applies sort of across the board is that today's consumers are hungry for information, and they are basing their decisions on materials that they find online. I just yesterday downloaded, there's the, that Google book that's out, the zero moment of truth. It's basically like this fancy name for the moment that customers, that you come on customers' radar screens and they make a decision about you. And there, the, it, the, the book talks about a lot of points where customers begin to to think about these things and make these decisions. And so one thing that people are always looking for online is information, education. So I think that anything that solos and small firms can put out there that educates potential clients are going to be effect is going to be effective. I have found the ebook to be an indispensable tool in my practice. I know it works very well for solo and small firm practitioners. I mean, the ebook is basically just a electronic version of a book. It could be frequently asked questions. Will I lose my car in bankruptcy? Can I declare bankruptcy but have my spouse not declare bankruptcy? Just those types of questions sort of compiled in a book that people can download from your website. The benefit of that is that when it's in a book form, first of all, it educates people. It tells them more about the issues that you handle, and so they self-select. If there was somebody who had $500,000 in assets and wanted to file for bankruptcy, presumably they would read your ebook and see, oh, I don't really qualify for it. And so you, would, it, you wouldn't even get the phone call for that. So it, it helps with self-selection. The other thing with the ebook is people pass it on. They send it to other people, and so they do the marketing for you. That's a phenomenon that I discovered with kind of my newest accidental practice area, which is representing landowners in federal eminent domain proceedings related to gas pipelines. I put together a very comprehensive ebook of about 40 pages because it was aimed at both municipalities and small businesses as well as consumers, and I put it online. And now, anytime there's a pipeline proposed, my ebook gets passed around the community meetings with 200 people. And in fact, somebody from the agency that regulates the pipelines called me and asked if she could give the book to to people who were calling her office. So I even have the regulator advertising for me. So I've really found that education-based marketing, where you can give people something of value for free, is is just dynamite. Fail, fail-proof marketing technique. Let's talk just for a moment about the cloud, and, and probably some listeners won't really understand what that is, so you might want to define it, but can solos ethically use the cloud in their law practice? 
I, I guess basically, I, and I thought you had all tech listeners. I thought I was going to be the the techno <laughs> techno novice or something with your with your crowd. Um, but essentially, I guess what cloud computing is is that the data that or the information services applications that you're using, instead of residing on your home machine, like right on your laptop or your desktop, they're in in cyberspace. They're in they're in the cloud. If you go to a site like Box.net, they have a really good diagram that explains it better. There's there's a lot of diagrams of of the cloud that sort of show how it works. And so your data is basically being hosted on a server that's outside from you and you log into it sort of in the way that you log into Gmail or, or Yahoo. Those mails, that, that type of mail is kept on a different platform and you log in, you, you go to it to access it instead of having it come to you down on your, on your machine. I guess that some of the issues that come up um, ethically is that because somebody else is managing and, and housing this data, there are questions about client confidentiality and the, uh, the vendor's ability to safeguard the data, your ability to, to access the data. I know that a lot of state bars are coming out with decisions on the cloud and also the ABA uh, Ethics 2020 came out with a proposed, I don't know, rule or guidance. I thought the approach that the ABA Commission took was actually extremely reasonable because it was a risk benefit approach. I do think that it's important that solos need to be careful when they're dealing with personally identifiable information, the PII. If you're handling credit card numbers, social security numbers, anything that can result in identity theft, you're looking at substantial possibility of harm to your clients. And so you've got to be compliant when you're managing data like that. But my own personal view is that for 99% or not 99%, maybe 90% of the other materials that solos handle sort of information about cases and strategy. Yeah, it's true that the opposing side can go after that information, try to hack into it, but that was the kind of stuff that they could always do. Otherwise, that information independently doesn't really have a lot of value, and I just don't think it's really vulnerable, and I don't think that erecting these sturdy brick walls to protect information where the harm that results from disclosure is very minimal. I, I just think that that's overkill and, and it scares people off. So I think that people should be prudent in working with, with cloud computing. The ABA proposal talks about some of the factors to consider and the risks to weigh. And you know what? I always would like to have that option, but I wouldn't have a problem if the bars just came out and said, look, you can do it that way, but if you really have no interest in learning about technology, if you have no desire to hire a consultant, here's 10 companies, they're certified, use one of them, just the way they do it with IALTA, and just have that as an option for people who really don't want to think about it at all. Well, that's a great tip, and, and one of my tips about cloud computing is to tell lawyers that you've got a lot of personal information that is uh, not at all privileged, it's just about you, that you may learn about how document storage on the cloud works with your own personal information. For example, I just got my new eyeglass prescription and scanned it and put it in Dropbox, and if I ever have broken glasses while I'm on the road, at least I'll have the access to the prescription in my phone if, if that could help me. Oh, uh, So really that's one idea, idea, you know. So uh, what tip would you have for our listeners? They love great tips uh, that, that they could go right away and use now. 
Well, my tip is actually kind of low tech, but what I like to do is when I carry around my, we all carry around a lot of computer equipment, I like to carry around a, what is it called? I don't even know what it's called, the, the power strip with like the different holes for the different plug holes and, um, and, and a long cable. And so if I ever wind up sitting in a Starbucks to do work, which I don't use the open wireless, I don't do that either. I use my uh, MiFi card and I try not to do anything very sensitive at, at a Starbucks, but but I can share the extension cord in the plug. And it also works. I, I often attend hearings that are, there's there's like 40 people in the room. And so I, and, and there's usually just like two outlets. And so when I plug that in, I also have like a luggage tag that I put on the cord. So people see my, my business card in it. And so I'm able to, to share my power strip with people. And so they can get, they can get power. And so it kind of, it's, it's a way to get myself noticed by doing something helpful, but in a very subtle way. And it only costs like $10. So, you know, that's, that's, that's a really good tip, especially that part about having your, your name visible. I I like that a lot. I'm going to steal that one, Carolyn, (laughs) (laughs) with your permission, I'm sure. (laughs) Yeah. Jim's heard heard that one too, but we we do want to tell you that Jim and I have both admired your work for a very long time. I I know you've meant a lot to a lot of solo practitioners. They've taken a lot of good advice from you and we both want to thank you for sharing your expertise with our listeners. Well, thank you. I'm very glad that you had me on your your program, and I I hope that this is a a valuable conversation for your listeners. It sure was. And, And that's all, folks, for this edition of the Digital Edge Lawyers and Technology. Thanks for joining us. Goodbye, Ms. Sharon. Happy trails, cowboy.